Hello, this is Jesse Liberty, and this is yet another podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Bill Wagner. Bill creates C-sharp learning and reference materials for learn.microsoft.com. He works with colleagues on the C-sharp team, related content teams, and customers to provide resources for everyone who wants to learn more about C-sharp. He's also a member of the ECMA C-sharp standardization committee, working to update the C-sharp standard. Bill, how are you? I am fine. How are you doing this morning, Jesse? I am doing very well. We had a little bit of trouble with my microphone, but it's all resolved. I hope. And, you are loud uh, and clear. Yes, great. I'm looking forward to talking with you. I'm hoping that this is part one of a um, couple part, uh, perhaps multi-part series on C-sharp 11 and how it has evolved. Let me say quickly, my theory, uh, proven by absolutely no research, is that a number of developers were keeping track with C-sharp up until about seven, six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. And mm-hmm. then the pace of change began to pick up and there were some new, interesting, powerful features added and those have evolved uh, all the way up to 11. So what I'd like to do is talk about what's in 11, but in the context of assuming that it's new to, to our listeners, that they may not be familiar with the earlier versions of some of these features. Sounds perfect. Great. What do you think is the most important or most interesting feature to start with? Well, if I start with that from, from that standpoint of hey, maybe you're still on C-sharp 7 or before, I'm going to name uh, pattern matching is probably the the area we've invested in a lot that really changes the way you write code. Yes, great, because that's an area that I, I've, I've likened it to the, uh, to the international dateline, which is to say, when it's explained to me, I understand it perfectly, and then five minutes later, I couldn't possibly explain it. Okay, so the, the way I like to explain pattern matching is it is a more dated data-driven way of doing what we've always done with virtual function, okay? So if you think of an object-oriented design, we're going to design a base class, and we've got common behavior, and that common behavior is going to be represented by, say, some set of virtual functions that then each class, each derived class implements a little differently, or maybe totally differently because of how they're, you know, how it's, it's structured, and because of what's the specific differences in those derived class, right? I'm with you. Okay, so most C-sharp developers are pretty familiar with that. So the tutorial that I built around pattern matching is, now let's take a real world scenario where that doesn't work. Let's say you're designing a toll system for a major metropolitan area, and it's based on a bunch of systems that have been in place since time began from the DMV. So there's totally separate programs from separate vendors to handle cars and trucks and taxis and uh, livery services and, and what have you. So because of that, I can't really make a base class that says it's one of these vehicles and I'm going to do what kind of thing it is based on knowing what type it is and just call calculate toll and some virtual function will do the right thing. Okay. Yes. But, but let's just take one second. Why won't that? Because I've got to take the car definition from vendor A, the taxi definition from vendor B and the truck definition from vendor C and none of them share a common base class. Yes. Okay. So that's a small nightmare in the the making. Yes. There we go. So this is the kinds of 
places where pattern matching comes in really interesting. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, let's take this object. It's based on system.object. We know we have that in .NET. And I'm going to look at properties, look at its type, and say, aha, I know something about this object. So here's how I calculate the toll. Okay. okay. Yeah. So now I can say if vehicle is taxi and taxi dot number of passengers is three, the toll is whatever, right? Vehicle is truck and truck dot weight is greater than five tons, you know, toll is this. Okay. Yes. So now what I'm doing is instead of dispatching through the compiler just on the type using virtual function dispatch, I can now dispatch based on looking at an object, looking at its actual data, which would include its type, and then say, now call this function or perform the calculation this way. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So that's everything that, that, you know, that's the elevator pitch for pattern matching. And now if you dive into the syntax for it that supports it is I can take an object and I can ask what type it is. And if that succeeds, I can assign it to a variable of that type. And then I can do further pattern matching on that to go if certain properties have these values or if certain properties are greater than or less than some, some constant or equal to some constant. And then I can build whole expressions out of that saying, you know, writing something as calculated as, as complex as if this vehicle is car and it's off peak hours overnight and it's going into the city, here's the toll. Right? That's, that's great. Just, that's just one expression. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and that's basically what pattern matching lets you do is I can now inspect an object or inspect a hunk of data and make some decision about control flow based on that. Does it necessarily come from multiple sources or is this useful when it's coming from, say, an API? Right. I do find it most useful when that API is something like a REST service where I'm going to build DTOs that really don't have a lot of behavior or it's, you know, here's JSON data and I'm not just mapping it into a C-sharp type, right? So I may not have a, a class hierarchy here. I just have different, basically structures, data structures that represent different kinds of data in a JSON packet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's that I think is where pattern matching suddenly becomes something really interesting and where I think it's really useful for our modern program. If you think of an application today, you know, and I know you do a lot of work with Maui and with things that are, are mobile applications. I've got an app on my phone, but most of the data is in somebody's cloud. Right. So I'm pulling data down from a REST service and then I'm going to display it or maybe manipulate it and then send it back and so on and so forth. So I'm getting these things from a REST service. And now what that data looks like, that shape of it may be very different than um, an object oriented paradigm where we spent all of our time there saying, you know, that our data structures and all of the functionality and responsibilities of a class are, are together, right? A, a class is its data and all of its methods. Yes. And if we look at the world today where we're building these distributed programs, we're finding a lot of cases where data is stored over here and manipulated over there and data and its responsibilities aren't necessarily the same anymore or the same type. There's now this separation because of how we're architecting larger programs. Okay, I'm with you. And that that's basically my uh, summary of uh, using pattern matching. Let me, let me uh, before we go on to the evolution of pattern matching and some of the new features in C-sharp 11 to support it, let me push on what you just said. I have a non-trivial but small demo application in Maui and and in that application, there are a number of different lists 
of items. Uh, don't want to go too deep into that as a distraction, but I go out to the API and I say, give me a list of all the people I know. And then I say, okay, for e- for this person, give me a list of all the things they like. And then for, you know, one of the things they like, give me a list of all and so forth. Would pattern matching help me with clarifying that rather than what I'm doing right now, which is creating objects that contain lists of other objects? It might not in that sense, but it might help you in areas of saying, find all my friends who like classical music, right? Because now I'm going to say, if this is one of my contacts and list contains classical music. Got it. Right. And that just becomes a single expression. Mm -hmm. Um, And pattern matching will allow me to do that rather than having ifs nested in ifs nested in ifs. Right. And that's honestly, um, when when I teach this and I have quite a bit of time and I can show code is what I will do is I will take something, a piece of code that uses a bunch of nested ifs and describes a lot of different conditions and I will turn that into a pattern match expression show people okay here's here's how this looks different yes uh, and I and I think that's that's the big win is then suddenly as I refactor this from you know if type is this then if property is that then if list contains something and you know today's date is Tuesday you know I put all of those into a pattern match going here's the pattern I'm looking for does right. it match right right that's great that that helps a lot one of the things that I keep hammering on is when would I use this and I think you just gave a great answer to that question. You know, when I first started trying to write about this, what I did myself as an exercise just to become more familiar with it is anytime I found myself writing an if statement, I would try to turn that into a pattern. And probably a little more than half the time, I would find the pattern was more readable. And I assume the deeper the if statements, the more so. Definitely true. Okay. Uh, There is, I believe, a tutorial. I don't know if your original tutorial or there's a new one on this available Am I right? It would be on Microsoft Learn? Yes. So we've got one in uh, in the doc section of Learn that I wrote, which basically does walk through that whole toll calculator bit and adds several different new conditions. You know, the scenario you walk through is, okay, it's pretty simple. We've just got different types of vehicles. Now it, we're trying to be green uh, and we're going to charge people depending on how many people they have in the car or how many passengers a taxi has. And now we're noticing peak pricing. So it's going to depend on whether it's the weekend or the weekday or rush hour and so on. Um, and then all of that just keeps building into this app and the patterns grow, but they're still very readable. So that's definitely one I would I would recommend people look for. Okay. And you said there was a second tutorial as well? There's a few others that I've done that, that use elements of pattern matching. Um, one other one looks at uh, building a finite state machine using pattern. So if you remember way, way back when we took computer science uh, back in our youth and you would have these things where you'd have like three variables and depending on you know the new input, one of the values of the variables changes and then depending on the input and the current level of, or the current value of each of those variables take some some action, right? Um, that's actually pretty easy to do as a pattern because I will take the pattern that I'm looking for is the value of each variable and whether or not um, and what the input is. Uh, the one I did was, you know, think of um, a system of locks on a river, right? So I can open only one of the two sides to the lock depending on the water level in the lock. So the variables are the water level in the lock, which door is open or shut. And, you know, I'm asking to either raise the level of the water, lower the level of the water, 
which you can only do when it's closed. And then I can only open the door when the level of the water matches which door we want to open, right? Right. So that kind of just shows how to use this this idea of a finite state machine where I've got a certain state I'm in and I've got a request for input. What's the next state I should go to? And do I honor that input and, and do whatever was requested? Great. One of the things that we'll do for this and the other topics that we discuss is that we'll put links on the show notes to where folks can read about that in depth. Absolutely. Uh, C-sharp 11 extends, as I understand it, actually 9, 10, and 11 each extended the capabilities of pattern matching. Can you talk briefly about where we stand now? Okay. Right now, I think we have a pretty full vocabulary for patterns. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to get the order exactly right on all of these, uh, but we've added things like more property syntax, so it's easier to look at an object. Once you know its type, uh, match a pattern on one or more properties of that object. Um, pattern matching now includes Boolean logic for and, or, and not. So I can combine two different patterns and say, I want to match this pattern and another pattern, or I want to match this or that, or this pattern has to be true and that pattern must be false. So I can combine that kind of logic in a pattern. Uh, the biggest thing that was added in 11 is what we're calling list pattern. So if you think of, say, if, if your program is pulling in uh, a list of data or a sequence of data, I can look for patterns in that sequence of data. Say, you know, like a, a, a good example here might be if I'm reading data values off a wire, look for sequences that match. Um, say it's Morse code and I want to look for an SOS. I can go, is there anywhere in this large string of dots and dashes where I find three dots, three dashes, and three dots in, in succession? Okay, I'm with you. Right. I'm, so, I'm, my, my head is trying to find a, a real world example uh, that might fit that. Um, I've seen them mostly in engineering kinds of applications where you're reading in a stream of data and you're looking for some triggering event. Got it. Right. Like it. maybe it's um, uh, reading someone's pulse in a medical device and I want to get pinged anytime I get a value over 75 and when did it happen? Yes. Right. Or something something of that nature. Any kind of a sensor reading data is probably one of our better and better examples for using a list pattern. So the last thing I want to ask you about patterns is, is this a good time to dive into patterns and if so, do you recommend starting by reading about it in 8 and then incrementally adding the various features? Or would you go to the documentation right now that's up to date and start learning patterns from there? I would go to the documentation as it exists now. Um, what you're going to find is the, the vocabulary just keeps getting bigger over those three releases. Um, and by starting just with what's there now, we've organized it in a way that makes it easier to learn that vocabulary rather than the order it was implemented in. Okay, great, great. So so that, that's the big one. Uh, what do you think is next? The next area I'd really look at is areas, areas around string manipulation. Um, some of these are just kind of nice tweaks. And then we've got a few big features that I think make working with strings a lot easier and a lot more pleasant. Um, in, in the area of small tweaks, you may have seen over time the ampersand and the dollar sign for an interpolated string that was also a, um, a verbatim string. When we first implemented that, it had a specific order and about half the people did it the other way. So now either order is fine. Um, the big one that I like in string manipulation is a feature added in 11 called raw string literal. And there's also a variation of that called raw interpolated string literals. So let's let's define what that means. 
So in C Sharp, we've had strings that go back similar to what we had in C and C++ and, and Java, where for any number of characters, you have to escape them. Precede it with a backslash, right? Yes. And then we had verbatim strings, which said, you know, if I precede my string literal with an ampersand, then I have to escape fewer characters, right? Yeah. So now raw string literals now says, if I enclose my quote my string with three double quote characters, so the starting and ending characters are three double quotes or more, everything inside that string is interpreted verbatim. Right. So that allows me to have within my string a quoted comment. Right. You could have a quoted comment, you could have any character that you can type on your keyboard, and it will come out verbatim as it looks like in your source code. And as I understand it, we had meds on, um, as I understand it, if I had a string that said, oh, and you need three quotes, and I showed three quotes, Mm -hmm. I can still do that by adding a fourth quote to surround it. Exactly. So that's why I said three or more in it, what I'm going to call it standard form, it would be three quotes. But if you need three quotes in the text, make it four or five or whatever. And when do I use multiple dollar signs? When you would use multiple dollar signs is let's say you're doing an interpolated string and you want to use the curly brace characters, which are what separates the interpolated string expression. Yes. Right. If I want to actually print out any of those curly braces, the number of dollar signs I use at the beginning of a raw interpolated string literal is the number of dollar signs that must enclose one of those um, interpolated string expressions. Okay. I'm sorry. You mean the number of braces? Um. The, the number, number of dollar signs has to correspond to the number of braces around the interpolated string. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Sorry if I said that incorrectly. Um, and if there are fewer braces, they just get printed. If there are more braces, then the inner ones match the interpolated string, and then the outer ones would be printed to the output string. Got it. Got it. Great. So that's raw R-A-W string, and that's new in 11. That is correct. Now, before we go on to other things that are in 11, am I right that in order to use uh, C-sharp 11, I need to be running .NET 7? That's correct. Okay, so one of the issues that's going to come up is I would need to move from 6, which has long-term support, to 7, which does not. Yes. So so here's the way I like to think of uh, long-term support and what we're calling standard-term support, which is what 7 has. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to directly attack a couple of misconceptions that I often hear. .NET 7 is supported, right? It is fully GA. It's not like a beta or anything like that. It is a fully supported release. Okay. The difference between long-term and short-term is to allow, or long-term and standard-term, is to allow customers to move at the pace they want to. If you want to move forward on every release each year, stay on standard-term support and just, now that 7's out, upgrade from 6 to 7. When 8 comes out, upgrade from 7 to 8. 9 comes out, upgrade from 8 to 9. We have other customers that, that want to work on a slower cadence. If that is where your enterprise is at or where your uh, comfort level is at, then go from six to eight. There you go. Gotcha. Okay. Um, how much is involved? I, I know this is a distraction from talking about C Sharp, but briefly, how much is involved if I have a uh, .NET 6 app mm-hmm. and I want to move it to .NET 7? That's really going to depend on the app, obviously. Um, I will say that when we worked through any of our samples and docs, it was pretty much just changing the .NET moniker from six to seven and saying go. Okay. Um, 
Um, you know, and, and I think this is true for every team. They do a lot of work to strive to make it as easy as possible to upgrade to the next version. Um, we do publish any of the breaking changes that are in there in, in docs. So you can see a list of that. Probably start started our, um, uh, there's a, the what's new page is going to have a link to the list of all the breaking changes that happened in .NET 7. So you can see which, if any of those affect you and what to do. Um, and again, as I said, I think, you know, most of the teams strive to make those, the service area of that as small as possible and, and only take breaking changes when there's a, a generally good reason to. Great. I'm going to bring us back to C Sharp. And uh, the last topic that I'd like to cover in this first part is the whole issue of initialized uh, properties, acquired properties. Yep. So That's actually a good one. That's the third one I really wanted to hit. But I want to finish one thing on strings before we leave that. Sure. So there are uh, one other uh, feature that was added is um, new lines are now allowed in the um, interpolated string expressions in an interpolated string. So okay. Since, so since you're writing C sharp there, you can go ahead and put new lines in those, and it, it just works. So depending on the you know the the text size of the expression, that can make your code a lot more readable. So now, I see. so so that new line would be for readability, but not wouldn't be output. Correct, and that's like inside the curly braces in an interpolated string, right? So it's in the expression of the code that gets executed. Got it. Got it. Well, that would have come in very handy yesterday when I had an interpolated string that went on past the right border of my page. Right. See, and that's when <clears throat> that's where you should upgrade or simplify my string. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the initialization and required members and so on. Um, I want to cover this in in kind of. Two Two themes that we're working through to make life easier and to make a number of places more consistent. Now, if you think of C Sharp since C Sharp 1, classes and structs are fundamentally somewhat different, right? Yes. It's a, a class is a reference type. A variable of that type is its reference. We're going to allocate some storage on the heap and put some data there and, and work that way. Structs are their data is in line. So allocating a struct means here's a hunk of memory that is the size of whatever data the struct holds and data's right there. And if I'm passing these around between mem uh, any methods, I pass the reference to a class type to a method and don't copy all the data. If it's a struct, I pass and copy the data to the struct, right? So right. we know well, we used to call passing by reference and passing by value. Right. And here I'm also really at times struggling with the language because technically we pass both of them by value, but the value happens to be a reference for class. Right. Right. So now now let's think about two things that we want to be able to do. The first one is to bring the syntax for working with classes and structs a somewhat closer together so that it's less painful if later you decide, oh, wow, well, this, this class should really be a struct. There's no inheritance. There's nothing here. It might be faster if it's a struct or this struct now is going to have more behavior. Maybe there's a hierarchy. I want to make it a class. That, that can be a painful transition. So we'd like to make that a little easier and make the two types act somewhat closer to the same. Okay. The other thing we really want to be able to do is starting with, I think it was C Sharp 3 is where uh, property initializers first showed up. Okay. And we've done some work to do collection initializers and to make those a little bit uh, smoother, including dictionary initializers and so on, which I think came in 7 if I remember right. Um, but we still have this issue where there's a fundamental disconnect between properties I set by calling a constructor and passing parameters and properties I set by initializing a property. Yes. Why can't those be the same? Or why do I need both? Why do I have, you know, because that gets to this weird code where I call new, some type, open paren, set some of the properties, close paren, open bracket, set some other properties, close bracket. That just looks weird, right? 
So let's try to bring those together. And there's a few different things that we've done between seven and now that really make that happen. So let's start with initializing property. One thing we've done is you can now make an auto initialized or an auto property only has a get setter or a get accessor. There's no set defined. Yes. Those can be set only in a constructor. So I can write, you know, property equals some value only in a constructor. Okay. Okay. And then anything else, even inside the class, it can only get that property and retrieve that property. Then I, we also added now a new type of set accessor that's called init, I-N-I-T. So I can say some property, open curly, get, semicolon, init, semicolon, close property. What that does is now that property can be set in a constructor or it can be set in any creation expression that uses property initialized. So I can say new thing, open curly brace, some property equals some value, close curly brace. Okay. Yep. Yep. We're still with you. And so that would work the same as when a, you know, if you previously would have had to define a constructor that takes that property as a parent, you know, as, as a parameter and then sets it inside the constructor or sets the field inside the constructor. And then you had only a, an internal, you know, your own hidden, hidden backing field. And now in C sharp 11, we added a new keyword that you can add on property definitions called required. And what that says is if I create a new object of some type, I have to set that property in one of the property initializers. If I don't, it's an error. Okay. okay. Yes. So now what I'm doing is instead of saying I'm going to define a constructor that takes these parameters and that's going to initialize matching these properties and so on and so forth. Now I can say, here's my type. It's got these three properties. All three of them are required. And when you new one of those up, you have to do open curly brace, property one equals some value, property two equals some value, property three equals some value, close curly brace. And we're done. And can I do that in the constructor or it has to be done in the initialize? Um, if I say required on the property, it has to be done in an initializer. Okay. So I'm forcing client code to call the initializer, but there is an escape hatch for that. If I'm modifying a class, say that already existed, I can say, oh, I already have a constructor that sets all those properties. So there's an attribute I can set on that constructor that's uh, spelled out sets required properties. Uh, might be set re sets required members. I'd have to look at the, look it up again. And what that tells the compiler is if they call this constructor, assume all the properties are initialized or all the required properties are initialized. Got it. Yep. So that's that's been one area of a lot of investment there. So now it should be a lot easier, you know, whether or not clients can set a property or how they set a property or so on should no longer mandate needing extra constructors or so on and so forth. You can decide that based on how you want your API to look. That sounds great. That sounds uh, just what's needed. And then the other area that we did a fair amount with on this is uh, struct initialization, which going back to C-sharp one has a few interesting kind of warts around it, uh, mostly related to things like array. So let's say I make an array of strings. So I make an array of 10 string, right? Because string is a reference type that array, when it's first created, is going to have 10 null values in it, right? Yes. Because that's just how we make array. Now, for performance reasons, we don't call 10 constructors and make 10 empty strings. Structs are the same way. If I were to make an array of 10 integers and I don't initialize anything, all 10 of those integers are zero. Yes. So now, as we start moving forward and we start doing more things with constructors and initialization in structs, we want to make a clear distinction between you've allocated a struct and it has its default value, which is all zeros, and you've allocated a struct and you've called a constructor. So any field initializers and a de possible default constructor has run and set it to some no 
known valid state. All right. Okay. So most of this operates under the hood, but effectively what it means when you create a constructor, you assign a new constructor, a new struct value. If you assign it to default, keyword default or default of its type, it's all zero. Okay. And if you call new and say var some value equals new some struct type, it's going to execute any field initializers and any optional uh, default constructor. And then we added some rules to make it clear. So if you have any field initializers in a struct, you have to define a constructor so that the there aren't holes and it's going to be obvious what happens. So now you can, there is a bit of a distinction in the compiler's analysis, whether a struct is its default value, which is all zeros, or its initial value, which is whatever initialization code sets it to. I have a confession to make before we stop. Sure. I, I've been using C Sharp since there was Sharp and including the early bits uh, of the language. And in those 22 years or so, I don't think I've ever written a struct. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go on. <clears throat> I guess my question is, what harm am I doing? Probably not much of anything, depending on the particular scenarios you're you're working on. Um, where we see structs getting used a little bit more is to try to minimize allocations to try to eke out performance. Yes. So, so if you look at some of the other investments that we didn't really talk about today, um, there's an area called ref safety. And this is primarily used by the .NET runtime team and somewhat by the compiler team to eke out performance in different areas. And effectively what they're trying to do very briefly is minimize the number of times that something gets allocated and then thrown away and also minimize how many times they copy something, some block of memory. Because if we're looking at something that gets called, say, a million times in your app, you know, that kind of stuff adds up. Yep. All right. So for that team specifically, and, and you know, some of the customers that run .NET in really high performance, high scale kind of environments, those kinds of, you know, what look like small performance improvements, you know, in, in most apps really add up. So that's a lot of where that investment goes in. Got it. Let's just tease part two. Okay. What, what are some of the topics we should be sure to get to? Uh, things that we didn't talk about at all is uh, generic math, um, default interface members, uh, which are two related. Well, generic math builds on default interface members in some ways. Um, and we should probably at least provide a bit of an overview of ref safety and what that means. Yes. Um, those, I think, I, are some of the, the biggest areas. I would also like to go back, time allowing, uh, to some of the features that came in after seven, but have become so uh, entrenched that we we almost don't notice them. And one of the things I'm thinking about is tuples ah, uh, yes. and, and how they're used and deconstructed and so forth. And uh, I'll make it my business to see if there are any others that, that are like that. The other one that, since you mentioned tuples, we should definitely discuss records. Yes, absolutely discuss records because that's another thing that I have not used at all. So uh, we sh I'm looking forward to talking. Bill, this has been uh, tremendous. This has been great, incredible informative and those links will be very helpful and we should talk uh, as soon as we get offline about when you can come back absolutely thank you very much for having me well i really appreciate your being here.